Well, excellent. John and Nancy are back from New Zealand, although they got home yesterday, and so they're or sometime yesterday. So I'm, I heard they just woke up a few minutes ago, and I get that. I know how that works. That's a, a long airplane ride. Uh, speaking of that area of the world, I was uh, talk. I was on a, a Skype call uh, to Japan for about an hour, a week or two ago, um, just kind of talking to. Actually, it was Doria. Some of you know Doria. And uh, getting ready to be over there next month. But she told me, uh, her, hu- her husband is a president of a seminary in Tokyo now, that there are about 8,000 churches in Japan right now, which uh, in 10 years, 4,000 of them will not have pastors. And quite probably those um, 4,000 could die of old age. They're just aging out. And, uh, you know, they've had the same cultural shift in Japan that we have had here, and it's changed the complexion of, you know, the nation. And it's possible that, um, you know, in the next 30 years, Christianity could kind of evaporate in Japan. It's less than 1% as it is. Uh, And so... uh, in Japan, I mean, I think the church in Japan probably needs to be encouraged that God has a plan and that uh, worship and gathering together and being a worshiper as you are moving around your community is an important part of that plan. And we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about worship today, just some of some things that I've been thinking about all week relating to that. Uh, a, couple, a couple different things that affected uh, what I've been thinking. Uh, one of them is just dialogue of how do we, how do we live here as believers uh, in in the world we're in. We're not in we're not as in desperate shape as Japan is, but as a whole, I'm, I'm hearing numbers that about 40 percent of Christians in congregations and churches have just taken the COVID exit ramp, in a sense, of just, you know, moved on. And uh, uh, the reality of who we are and what we need to do needs to be changed a little bit. And before COVID, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of talk about church growth methods and all those kinds of things, how to get people into buildings um, and how to attract people, attractional models, and that kind of stuff. And I've never been, I've always probably, in a sinful way, uh, have been a student of that. You know, how do we get more people to show up and be a bigger church or something in that? You know, I've tried to fight that all my life. But I think the Lord's really speaking to a lot of leaders and pastors, especially in the West, and I'm interested to find out next month when I have feet on the ground a little more. I mean, I definitely get input from Pierce, and I haven't got a lot of input from Shinshiro's because of the language barrier. But, you know, we, I think the Lord's speaking that we have to do something different. We have to be a different person other than what our culture has shaped us into as being Christian. And I think really a key, a key part of that, Probably the key part of that is those who are believers now expand their understanding of what it means to be 
a worshiper. You know, and now we, we have a little trouble in this thought process, mostly because of the background that many of us have come from, that worship is this experience we just had, which it is. That's corporate worship. But that's a manifestation of other aspects of worship, worshiping the king. And that's, that's an authority issue, those kinds of things. Are we servants of the king? Are we involved in his plan uh, to, uh, you know, usher in the fullness of his kingdom, the now, what I call, and this is not original, the now and coming kingdom. And the kingdom is here. We know that. I've told you that. I'm reaching for a cup. Am I close? Okay, good, good, good. <clears throat> My meds, man, they're just turning me into a desert. Okay, what was I saying? Experience worship, thank you. <laughs> but it's more than it's more than just this experience. And I think a lot of us have grown up and many, many people are just involved with worship on the level of a good experience rather than the confrontation or the the one-on-one we have with Jesus where maybe he might speak to us in in not only encouraging ways but in challenging ways that cause us to grow and change. So <clears throat> that's why I like this dialogue that we've been having over these uh, three weeks now, and John will come and finish it next week. And uh, looking at the scriptures he has, I've been reading more uh, and reading and studying quite a bit you know, in the book of Revelation, and I like how the book of Revelation fits into this dialogue of what does it look like to be a church in exile or a person in exile. And we talked about that a little bit last week where you have uh, where you have John, who maybe, maybe the gospel writer, maybe not that John, uh, but you have him literally in exile, separated, got lots of time on his hands, um, you know, not all of the comforts of the culture around him, the Roman or Greek cultures around him, all those kinds of things. And he is looking to God. He is forced to look to God. He's praying. And it says things in the very first chapter, like, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, you know, and I saw this. Write this down and do it. Well, I'm I'm looking at chapter 4 now because in chapter 4, the dialogue there is John actually seeing the throne room of God. He is getting some kind of visible perspective of God on the throne and the things that are happening. And I want you to understand that I, I do not think that the book of Revelation is a timeline. I don't think it's linear. These are the things that are going to happen, okay? You know, I think whatever's happening in the book of Revelation has been happening for et- maybe eternity, but at least from the reality of the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is on the throne. And all of those different things that we read about in the book of Revelation, about seals breaking and bowls being filled with prayer, I agree with a number of theologians that I've read um, recently that all of that is happening simultaneously. And it's almost like if you were to envision uh, a drone, you were a drone or you had a drone, but let's just say you had the ability to fly and you were in the throne room of God and you were to kind of circle around, you know, and take different positions, you would see different things in 
those in that realm. In, in that realm were various beings, various uh, entities. There are some people there that are of our, you know, who we are. There are some angels there. Uh, there's some, some beasts there, some, not the beast, but there's some creatures there, living creatures, all worshiping. And then when, when John has to write this down, he can't write that down in a circle. And I understand that circle thought, though, that's an Asian perspective. And, the, and, and um, really, uh, the Bible, the culture, the Middle Eastern culture is more Asian than it is Western, okay? So, you know, he, he can't write all that circular stuff down. He has to write what he sees. Well, first he saw this, and next he saw this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's coming about in order. It's happening in eternity. And God is processing us and the church and discipling us and exposing us to that stuff to be able to sense and see his plan moving towards the completion of this kingdom, the now and coming kingdom. Is that, is that making any sense to you? So, I mean I, I mean, I went through years of the full, you know, I'm all-mill, pre-mill, no-mill, uh, let's go to the mill, get some lumber, you know, all the mills, you know. When's the rapture? Is there a rapture? Who's the rapture? I, you know, none of that matters as much as that this is a plan that is happening and fleshing out in the throne room of God, and we got a glimpse of that, and it's meant to be a prophetic, in this case, word of encouragement to us. And a key part of this dialogue through the first few verses of it, and really it's emphasized in the first few chapters of it, there's, is, is this lordship and holiness and worthiness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what we see in, in chapter 4 is that throne room where, where all this is playing out and people are and creation is worshiping. And we don't have time to break all that up into who, who's doing what, but that's what it is. But if we pick this up, about verse 6 in chapter 4, there has been this description of this throne room, kind of an introductory thing, and you can go back and read those first five verses. But this is, this is what it says, and this is really a dialogue as they're seeing the wholeness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together. Or if you must, you could just say the Father God, if that's easier for you to comprehend. Excuse me. Verse 4 says, In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. Now imagine, I mean, just anytime you hear a statement like that, I mean, I think you could probably just easily multiply the splendor of that description exponentially, infinitely, eternally. I mean, it's, you know, they're just words are limited, right? I mean, we're trying to describe the throne room of God or the heavenly realm that God is dwelling in. Words are just beginning to scratch the surface. It goes on to say, In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a human face. The fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out, day after day, night after night. They kept on saying, and I'll read this in a minute. 
that is symbolic. I mean, it isn't like these are the first uh, words of apocalyptic writings that ever exist. But this, this all through historical writings like this, that, that's talking of all creation. All creation is worshiping. Everything is worshiping. Everything is acknowledging God is God, right? So it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Now that's, I mean, we'll get to created human beings, but that's even... That's, that's all creation. Whatever God created is, is responding in worship to his presence all the time. We don't understand that. We don't comprehend that. But John saw this and is saying, well, it's happening. You don't get it right now, but it's happening. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, now here's us. Here's human. These are representations of us. There's 24 elders. Most agree that that's representative of 12 tribes, Jewish, but another 12 who are uh, apostles and then birthed church, which is the Gentiles. Everyone else, here it is. So the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, if you are worthy, O Lord, you... You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you have created all things, and they exist because you have created it, uh, created what you pleased. So creation was made along with us in it to worship God. That's a part of the process of knowing and walking God. And it, and it is not just limited to the experience that you have here in this church. It's a heart attitude. It is a realization that God is absolutely above all things and is all-knowing, all-loving of us, even though he didn't have to. All of that stuff is there. As we respond to that, we are deciding to, uh, to make that be our driving force, the framework in which we frame life. The way we frame our activities and we're, it's decided by worship. Now, we are living in a world that's really, really challenging to do that in, all right? Just keep that in the bottom of your mind or the top of your mind, on the tip of your tongue, somewhere up there. What a, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Okay, so that's chapter 4. I won't read chapter 5, but chapter 5, they're, they're responding to the wounded lamb, which we know as Jesus, in very similar setting. So here we have chapter five, chapter 4 and chapter 5 talking about that. Now let me give you a quote from N.T., N.T. Wright. If you are interested in this dialogue about Revelation, N.T. Wright has a great little uh, book, a little commentary for the rest of us. Uh, it's not technical. It's very devotional, and it's just um, called Revelation. And it's the Bible. What is it called? I'll put it up somewhere. I have the whole series of them. But anyway, that's a good one. And there's another one by Scott McKnight called Revelation for the Rest of Us. Those are 
two very, very, very scholarly guys that understand stuff. I love N.T. because he is, first of all, an ancient historian, doctorate in ancient history, and he has also got a doctorate in theology, and his perspective and ability to look at why and how and what was used to write the Bible is incredibly illuminating, just remarkable. But he says this, the logic of John's vision is not that what he sees in the heavenly dimension is merely reflecting on what is going on in the life of the church, but rather that what he sees in heaven is what ought to be going on on earth. On earth as it is in heaven, right? This is a part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus has given. So we are invited somehow to embrace this heavenly kingship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Lordship of Christ, and bow before him and realize that there is nothing that supersedes that. That is a difficult situation. We also know from the scripture I've read a thousand times here, probably, or whatever, is Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you that you give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Now, there is, there is an entry-level step of worship right there. What he has done for us is, makes him worshipable. He is worthy. He has intervened where no one else could intervene to restore our relationship with God and put us on the path to be makers and involve people in the development of the reestablishment of his kingdom. Okay. Because of all he has done for you, period, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, your person, your body, your, your, uh, your body, your soul, your spirit. Let that be a sacrifice. What does that mean? That it's only available to who you give it to. That's a, that's a part of the reality of what covenant means. It is only available to whoever makes a covenant with you. It, it is destroyed, so there is no access at that point that anything else can have that, your, your, your soul, your spirit, your body. You get that? That's a, that's a cool revelation to me. Sacrifice means no one but what you have given it to is gets it. So what are you giving that stuff to that nobody else gets? God's saying this is this is what we need to do here with Him. That's really the definition of worship: is that you're giving yourself in the way that it's destroyed in access to anything else. Now that doesn't close the door to other relationships or living here or those kinds of things. It just means it's a priority, and that defines these other relationships. The kind of sacrifice, the kind of holy sacrifice he will find acceptable, this truly is the way to worship him. Don't copy that behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, a new person changed. There's lots of things we do to tinker with who we are, but this is the big one. This is the one that really counts. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, his purpose, where you fit, who you are, what your identity is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. 
Now, that's what God's asking us to do. I think, excuse me, I'm not, not saying necessarily we were bad. We were pro- probably guilty of not being real worshipers, for sure. Not on, on. Thank God there's grace. But we've really lived in a culture that kind of separated worship from this worship, you know? The worship experience from transforming worship, from the kind of worship that totally changes our heart and reshapes us and makes us more Christ-like. Now we have to do that in exile. And exile, I'm using that definition as saying, is um, being a part of the body of Christ partly our fault and partly because of the changing of the culture is not like it was five years ago. But that's, where we, that's how I would define worship and exile. We're, we're weird. We're different. And that's, that, that's good as long as it's God making us weird and different, right? But worship is an indispensable part of the now and coming kingdom process. And that is confirmed by that Romans 12 scripture there. You offer yourself up. He'll tell you who you are, what we're doing, and how we're going to make this process happen. Here in this dialogue of Revelation, people in exile are finding out, and that letter was written to people who were like, mm, I might be getting kicked out of the synagogue as a Jew, or I'm, you know, my neighbor got killed because he professed Christ, that kind of stuff. It's like, eh, maybe I need to go back to this safe spot of what the culture accepts, and that was Judaism or, you know, or something like that. And I brought that parenthesis up for a point, and I forgot what it was. I'm sorry. But, the, but worship in exile is, is, is it's not as popular to be a believer as it used to be. That was my point. It's not as easy, and it's not as easy to be a true worshiper. You could probably be a church goer and leave the building and never worship again, never acknowledge the kingdom of God and the king and Jesus, again, the lordship of Christ. You could just go off and do your own thing and come back. But true worship challenges you to be transformed by him so that you will become a transformer of the world around you. So if we're looking at this process of what it means to worship in exile, it starts out with us being, you know, having conviction in our lives, conviction of our sin. Hey, we're not enough. I'm falling down. I'm, I know I'm not worthy of God's presence. I repented that. I want to know you more, God. And then our relationship with God is restored. Then we have revelation. And uh, when I say revelation, the overwhelming awe of who God is and what he's done in our life. That, that leads to worship. That brings worship into our life. Then it causes us to be a servant of God, to serve God and who he asks us to serve. And then we begin to, in that process to be transformed into his likeness. And, and we don't, I mean, I've had days where I am definitely not transformed, but it's the reflection of God's being and his glory. And it can manifest itself in a lot of ways, hope where there's no hope or love, where someone is unloved, or grace to re- that encourage you know, people to know that grace is available. If we can show grace to each other we can, and show grace to sinners especially, we can 
see God's grace amidst us, and we have the character of God in us. And I like to say that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is the character of Jesus working its way out by the Spirit in our life. And you've got the abilities of Jesus in some of the you know, lists of gifts and those kinds of things. Now, here's a challenge. I think that, at least in my mind, is a compelling argument to what worship really is and that we should do it, that it transforms us. But here's the challenge. Here's the hard part. This is why it's hard work. Warning, guys. Being a true Christian is hard. It's dangerous. It's really hard. You're going to have to make some decisions, and you're going to have to put some effort in and some discipline, not to get approved by God, but to grow in your relationship with God and to let Him transform you. Are we culturally washed? That's my term. Are we so washed by, you know, because we're not, we haven't been in the kingdom. We're just kind of dancing a little with it. You know, we've been more formed by our culture. Are we culturally washed? I am. Culture what culture says I should be affects me probably more than what Jesus does, says I should be. And I wrote down, it's difficult to worship God in a fallen world saturated with idols. Oh, we don't have any idols. I don't have, I don't have any idols at my house. You know, I haven't carved anything. Or, you know, no, man, our houses, our lives. Our oikos, our spiritual realm, is full of idols that we worship that are important to me. And you, and you learn about that by asking you this question. <clears throat> what can I live without or what can I not live without? And really exploring those. Now, I'm not, hopefully that, I'm not hoping that we doctrinate a, a bunch of people in a police force that monitors this in each other's life because... That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about allowing God to challenge us in that realm and pray about it and be open to him working those things through. Because we all are guilty in this room. No one here has nailed this, right? But all of us should be in this process because, like, worship is a part of the process of restoring the coming kingdom, the now and coming kingdom. This is a part of it also. Again, I'll read you one more from N.T., all right? He says this, Sadly, there are many Christians who think of Jesus purely in terms of their own comfort and hope. He has rescued us. He is, he is uh, with us as a friend. And, on, and who fail to completely see the sheer scope of his majesty, the sweep of his glory. Many rest content to have Jesus around the place for particular spiritual purposes, but continue to assign riches, power, and glory in the rest of the earthly forces and rulers. Actually, those things becoming God in our lives. Now, that's a battle. That's a battle that you can't win in your flesh. You can only make your flesh sit down long enough to let Jesus graciously deal with that stuff. It's a hard thing. And we're asked to do hard things if we're Christian. We're asked to do hard things. And we can do hard things. We can. I'm not talking about lifting heavy weights or, you, you know, you, you could do that too. Or run on a marathon. You can do that too. All of those things are hard things. But the hard things 
that I'm talking about right, right now is to be a worshiper of Jesus and take the time to do that. I wrote down here, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, comma, a follower of Jesus, you are continually going to be asked by God to sacrifice and serve and give all the time, consistently. And those are the things that allow us to be processed to a place that all we need is Jesus and that helps us serve other people who need us. We need to learn to entertain God. And I use that word around here, I think, quite a bit. Entertaining God is not having God over for dinner. Entertaining God is acknowledging his presence around you. Wrong one? exactly my point. Well, I guess we're going home now. That was excellent. You're not so lucky. That is it. And that's, that's, that's the point that N.T. Wright makes is that we, so many of us, settle for less because we do not embrace this reality. We settle for less. We do not know the full majesty of, and greatness of who God is because we don't embrace this sacrifice and serve and give. Now, your sac- whatever is a sacrifice or an act of service or give, whatever, you know, that may look, may look different, you know, from person to person, however God challenges you. Somewhere in this room is the most spiritual person in this room, you know, and I don't know who it is. I know it's not me. So, we're, again, we can't be like, well, you better, you better get your act together. God starts us with challenges and things that are appropriate. But the goal is for him to, to process us in a way that we know his greatness and reflect it. And we start by entertaining God, recognizing that process of entertaining God. What is that? I can have you in my home and ignore you, and, you know, but I can choose to turn my face to you and talk to you, and engage with you. That is entertaining. I mean, that may be offering you a cup of tea or a cookie or something like that, but those are all just the benefits, the fringe benefits of just making someone feel welcome in their midst. And we need to have a life that entertains the presence of God. We need to, re- again, and I'm now don't, this almost just sounds like a formula. You need to read the Bible and then listen. I mean, man, I, when I sit down for a few moments every day, I have incredibly encouraging and challenging moments with Jesus because I have taken the time to do it. And that's one of the hard things to do within our culture. There's a hundred million idols screaming for attention in our culture. And that's probably a low number. So I make a point of, of 
spending some time first off with God every day somehow. Before I look at an email, before I do anything else, before I get distracted, I grab that thing. And the more I do that, the richer it gets. And, and, I, and I have a chair I sit in. I have a place that I do that at. And it's kind of cold. Leave me alone. The dog is welcome unless he um, doesn't leave me alone. Pray for Finley. He's having a little surgery tomorrow. He's got a big tumor on the end of his nose. It's expensive to save your dog's life. But I'm going to sacrifice. <laughs> sacrifice. What does that mean to sacrifice? Well, we know that in the New Testament, you know, there were times where, you know, the little old lady put in her two coins, and that that was worth more than the rich guy that put in the extra bill he had in his wallet, right? So we understand sacrifice as being something that costs us something. It humbles us. humbles us. It causes us to confess. These are all things um, that make us grow. It causes us to confess that we trust God no matter what, see? Where we tithe, where we come to church. Those are all acts of sacrifice that cause us to remind us that God is more important than anything else and that he takes care of us, right? Give, I just talked about giving. But another form of giving is forgiving. Think of the person, there may be somebody right in your life that is just absolutely terribly wicked to you. God will use them to humble you and make you closer to God if you forgive. Or you may have lumped a whole group of people together culturally or politically or whatever, even religiously, and can't forgive them. You've got to work on forgiving those people. Jesus challenges us to worship with all we are. With all we are. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Just any time that you see that word, love in there, you can translate it to serve, worship, give to, receive from. That's Love is an overarching word that covers all those things. This is key statement, you know, in Jewish structure, theology. Jesus brings it into our world. Goes on to say, in love, Love everybody else, too. Give to them, sacrifice for them. I, I'm, I think post-COVID Christianity could be the best ever. I think it could. No matter what happens in our nation, around the world, I think God has got us in a position to say, I really want your heart. Give it to me. And you're going to find this majesty and fullness and greatness. You're going to find out that I have a purpose that you are 
involved. You're not just rescued, but you are a cog, you're a person, you're a loving, living individual that's in a part of this restoring of the kingdom. But if you're going to do that, if you are, I'll read it again, if you are a Christian, if you say you are a Christian, if you say you are a follower of Christ, you are continually going to be asked by God. Might sound like your wife. Might sound like your friend. Might sound like the tax man. You're going to continually be asked by God to sacrifice. Man, I am so... It's just nice when somebody gets what you're trying to say, Francis. It's just it's the fact that you pick that message up, this core component. You're going to be asked by God to sacrifice and serve and give, and that's what's going to open the floodgates into your life and into other people's lives. Amen? That's worship. Be worshipers. Come here and worship. Man, go and be worshipers. Amen?